The next speaker, Dr. Matthew Gaetano, is one of my closest friends since I was around 14 years ago, freshman at Hillsdale College. He was one of the first people I met because he had been a good sis friend of my sister, um, and we've been friends ever since. And so I've been racking my brain all week because I figured I needed at least one college anecdote for introducing him. And there was one that jumped out as the perfect description um, of Dr. Gaetano. And that is that one evening during of the many long night study sessions, um, I believe we were working on writing some medieval theology papers for a class. And anyway, Matt decided that he needed to take a small break, take a small nap, in order to have enough energy to get to the end. And so he fell asleep on his brother's bed, um, and no joke, every five minutes he would sit bolt upright in bed, eyes still closed, completely asleep, and quote entire passages from the Summa. Um, and that, so I can say that literally Matt in his sleep knows Thomas Aquinas better than most people do waking. Um, and anyway, after college, he did his MA and his PhD at UPenn in history. Um, he emphasizing particularly, I could screw this up, but his period he studied especially is Counter-Reformation Venetian Dominicans. But um, it involves a whole lot more in deep theology and tying in perfectly with this topic. Um, he's now an associate professor of history at Hillsdale College, his alma mater. And he's earned numerous academic awards for his work in Renaissance, Reformation, and Counter-Reformation history. He actually teaches the, teaches the Reformation class at Hillsdale College, um, including his dissertation prize from the Society of Italian Historical Studies, the Gladys Creeble Delmas Foundation Fellowship, and the Lemmerman Foundation Fellowship. And since 2010, he's been a Molin Scholar of the Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at the University of South, Southern California. And his membership is coveted in numerous academic societies, including the Academy of Philosophy and Letters, the Society of Medieval and Renaissance Philosophy, and I'm gonna to start to slow down a little bit. Um, needless to say, he's a very distinguished academic. So, um, because he's my friend, I feel like I can cut him a little bit short for the sake of us going over and recognize Dr. Matthew Gaetano. thank the uh, Center for Evangelical Catholicism, my old pal TJ, uh, Father Newman, my uh, peers and colleagues who are going to be speaking later, and all of you. Uh, two hours straight on the doctrine of justification from the 16th century, that's, uh, that's a pretty impressive crew, a pretty impressive way to spend a Friday evening. So I'll jump right into it. Uh, and I hope that we'll see the, the intersections uh, uh, between this lecture and the one that came before. So several months ago, a prominent Catholic writer came to Hillsdale College and presented a rosy picture of the state of the ecumenical movement, even of the prospect of full ecclesial unity between Catholics and Protestants. The basis for this claim was the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification signed in Augsburg in 1999 by the Lutheran World Federation and the Catholic Church. We've just heard a bit about that. Essentially, the claim was that if Catholics and Protestants can find peace regarding what Lutherans have called the first and chief article, 
then why could we manage to iron out all our remaining differences regarding the Pope, the Eucharist, the invocation of the saints, and so on? Others have presented such views in print. Uh, Christian Smith, a sociologist for religion at Notre Dame, has said that, quote, the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification should satisfy the theological scruples of any reasonable Protestant. Catholicism today teaches salvation by grace, Christ alone, not earned by good works. In short, when it comes to the decisive doctrine of justification, here's the news. The Reformation is over. I think we just heard a dissenting opinion from that, and I hope you'll hear a dissenting opinion from me as well. Because Smith believes that the Reformation is over, at least with respect to what Martin Luther himself called the kernel of all his preaching, we have, Smith says, become, been confronted with a truly world-historical religious event which requires religious, excuse me, reasonable Protestants to update their map of reality. I'm Catholic. I seek to be a reasonable one, but I disagree with this assessment of the current state of affairs. One of the questions animating this conference is, where do we go from here? If we seek to answer that question, it is fundamental to know where here is. What is the true situation in the debate about the gospel itself? a central element for all the magisterial reformers of the 16th century, and indeed for medieval theologians. Thomas Aquinas called justification God's greatest work, greater than the creation of the entire universe, is the salvation of one soul, the justification of one soul. This conference also asks, in what ways have these theological reasons for the Protestant Reformation been addressed in the last 500 years? It seems to me that my conservative Protestant friends are right to raise some questions about the Joint Declaration and to ask whether we are in much the same place as we were in the 16th century. The recognition of this fact is not necessarily rooted in stubbornness or unreasonableness on either side, and for me it is rooted largely in the desire of historian to understand the motivations and goals of the 16th century reformers. Moreover, I think that an honest recognition of the concerns of Missouri Synod Lutherans, Presbyterians of the PCA or OPC, Anglicans who really embrace the 39 Articles, and Evangelicals who hold the doctrine of justification by faith alone, taking seriously the criticisms of our separated brethren is in keeping with the Second Vatican Council's decree on ecumenism. While this landmark document expresses the Council's desire for the restoration of unity among all Christians, it firmly acknowledges that we must get to know the outlook of our separated brethren. To achieve this purpose, study is of necessity required, and this must be pursued with a sense of realism and goodwill. Even more crucial is Vatican II's statement that it is essential that the doctrine should be clearly presented in its entirety. Nothing is so foreign to the spirit of ecumenism as a false irenicism. Before moving on to the 16th century debate, I want to make clear that this concern about a false irenicism is not entirely aimed, in my talk, at the Joint Declaration itself, perhaps more at the spirit of the Joint Declaration. While the Joint Declaration has been received by some writers as a world historical event, forcing an update of our maps of reality, the document itself recognizes that it does not cover all that the either church teaches about justification. So there's some modesty there. It claims to, quote, encompass a consensus on basic truths of the doctrine of justification and shows that the remaining differences in its explication are no longer the occasion for doctrinal condemnations. So the first part, let's state what we do agree about, could be reasonable. Uh, it's the second part that 
makes our Lutheran and Reformed Christian and even Roman Catholic friends uh, a bit nervous. When one reads the document, at least in certain places, one finds doctrinal formulations placed side by side, which were essentially the same teachings that led to such fierce debates in the 16th century. And these are our ancestors, after all. Why exactly does the teaching of the Council of Trent no longer fall under the condemnation of the Lutheran confessional document, the Formula of Concord, 1577-1580? Why do key Lutheran teachings no longer fall under the condemnation of the Council of Trent? Such questions may be answered, and there are books that try to do that, but the Joint Declaration mainly relies upon an assertion that Quote, the remaining differences of language, theological elaboration, and emphasis in the understanding of justification are acceptable. So let's set aside the efforts of 1999 and turn to what was at stake in the 16th century. Uh, of course, we can't cover it all. A month before publishing his much more famous 95 Theses, in, in September 1517, the month before October, Luther set forth a quite scholastic disputation against scholastic theology. There he saw himself as defending the teaching of Augustine against Pelagianism. The Pelagian heresy being the view, to oversimplify a bit, that one could merit one's salvation without grace, and that human nature is not wounded by the fall of Adam. In this disputation, Luther never named scholastic theologians like Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, or Bonaventure, which is remarkable. Rather, the 14th century Franciscan theologians John Duns Scotus, William of Ockham, the more recent nominalist theologian Gabriel Beale, perhaps not household names, come up for direct criticism. According to Luther, they held that one could congruously merit, meritum de congruo, one's justification. Sort of merit. Of course, someone who is not justified, who is not in a state of grace, couldn't truly merit anything from God, for all these medieval theologians. Why? Because they are not God's friends, but his enemies. But some of these later medieval theologians said that fasting, prayer, almsgiving, imperfect acts of love, and so on, could be a way of doing what is in oneself. Such efforts would dispose oneself for the grace of God. After all, in the widespread medieval phrase, to the one who is doing what is in himself, to the one who is doing what he can, God will not deny his grace. Facienti quote in se est for those taking notes. Luther replied to these later medieval theologians that the fallen will is, Luther says, innately and inevitably evil and corrupt. To love God above all things by nature, this is a fictitious term, a chimera. So a key element of the Augustinian Friars 1517 disputation against scholastic theology is to defend the total dependence upon divine grace and our total inability to dispose ourselves for justification through our good works. What is interesting is that the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent basically agreed that there were some difficulties in the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, of Gabriel Beale and others. For, for this reason, documents, modern documents, like the Joint Declaration or Evangelicals and Catholics together do an important service when they point out that Catholics do not believe that one attains a state of grace or friendship with God or acceptance by God through one's good works. Although this view was condemned by the Catholic Church as the Pelagian heresy a long time ago, accusations that Catholics believe that they are justified by works are, as uh, Dr. Phillips pointed out, widespread in popular literature and polemic. But the Council, of, the Council of Trent's sixth session on justification back in January 1547 began its canons of anathema with the following. 
First, if one says that man may be justified by God through his own works, whether done through the teaching of human nature or that of the law, without the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. That is, if you think you can be saved through your works, justified through your works, anathema. In chapter 5 of the Decree on Justification, the assembled bishops at the Council of Trent taught that, quote, in adults, the beginning of the said justification is to be derived from the prevenient grace of God. It comes before, through Jesus Christ, from his calling, his vocation, whereby without any merits existing on their part, they are called to justification. While there is some controversy among scholars about whether Trent fully condemned the view that there is some kind of partial merit or congruous merit in God granting grace to those who have disposed themselves with prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and so on, as Gabriel Beale seems to have taught, Beale's position, this late medieval position, was clearly put on notice. One of the leading Thomists, followers of Thomas Aquinas at the Council of Trent, the Dominican theologian Domingo de Soto, I'll be coming back to him, said that this later medieval position of Gabriel Beale was actually a reason for the Lutheran fear that all of Catholic theology was shot through with the Pelagian heresy. He said that, quote, Scotus and all of the nominalists are the theologians who scandalized the Lutherans to such an extent that they accused all theologians of the Pelagian heresy. So he sees this late medieval position as a scandal. He points out, though, that Thomas Aquinas and other pretty prominent theologians didn't hold this view. So we need to be careful. Though Soto goes on to show that these later medieval theologians are not fully Pelagian, the Spanish Dominican argues that the best reading of the Catholic tradition, and now the Council of Trent, is that, quote, from our natural powers, there can be no sufficient disposition for grace. If it is licit for me to exercise my conscience, if I can tell you the truth, Soto says, the more that I consider this congruous merit, the less does it seem to me to be congruous with the character of justifying grace. That was a joke. As Paul says, where there is debt, there is no grace, because debt properly bears away the whole character of grace. Soto argues that setting aside this language entirely of congruous merit and doing within ourselves in this respect would not only be in keeping with the ancient church's anti-Pelagianism, but would also have another beneficial effect. The Lutherans would then make an end of afflicting us with this ignominious charge. Whatever may have been the state of academic or scholastic opinion, the church itself, according to Soto, never stopped confessing that we are justified by Jesus Christ our Lord with no human merits whatsoever preceding our justification. So Lutherans in the Council of Trent both rejected the Pelagian view that human beings could merit justification, that we can merit heaven without God's grace. Indeed, Luther and key theologians of the Council of Trent both rejected, to varying degrees, the views of some later medieval theologians that one could, by nature, love God above all things, do what is in oneself, and thereby even congruously merit justification. For theologians like Soto, no merit whatsoever preceded justification. So Luther and Soto at Trent are both aimed against not only Pelagius, but these later medieval theologians like Beale. When modern ecumenical documents point out this fact, it is certainly a valuable thing because of widespread misperceptions on this point, but we must recognize that this doesn't advance us beyond the middle of the 16th century. 
Three fundamental soteriological issues between confessional Protestants and theologians like Soto at Trent, and I'll just, choo I'm choosing these three, there are others, of course, were one, whether we are justified by faith alone. Two, whether our justification before God is based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness and thus separate from sanctification. And three, whether the works of Christians might be called meritorious. While each of these points, even in the context of the 16th century debate, were not quite as clear-cut as we might expect, they were and still are genuine issues of disagreement. But I, but I will eventually suggest that all of them are rooted not as much in a debate about how one is justified, but on the way of thinking about the character of the Christian life after justification. In particular, the issue of whether original sin is entirely washed away in baptism. So that, I'm going to suggest that's the key to, to understanding a lot of these issues, or at least a key. First, faith alone. The Council of Trent described justification as, quote, a translation from the state in which man is born a child of the first Adam to the state of grace and of the adoption of the sons of God through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Trent said that the Holy Spirit prepares us for this translation by eliciting acts of faith, hope, and charity. And it's worth noting that Aquinas believes that justification in this sense is instantaneous. At the very moment when there's the uh, bringing about of charity in the soul, at that very moment, one enters the state of justification. By way of contrast, Luther famously taught that we are justified by faith alone. One challenge for interpreters, uh, sketch only briefly here, is that Trent and Luther defined faith differently, even back then. Luther describes justifying faith as a confidence or trust, a fiducia in the promises of God in Christ. And this is why we have this assurance, because it's simply the acceptance of these promises. The Lutheran confessional document, the epitome of the formula of Concord, defines justifying faith as not a bare knowledge of the history of Christ, but such a gift of God by which we come to the right knowledge of Christ as our Redeemer in the word of the gospel and trust key term, trust in him that for the sake of his obedience alone we have by grace the forgiveness of sins. The Lutheran conception of faith as trust focuses on clinging to the promises of God to me and for me, pro me. By contrast, Trent thinks of faith uh, in, in, in many cases as a supernatural conviction in or assent to the absolute trustworthiness of God's word in a very general way, which especially includes God's promises. Quote, adults being disposed unto this justice receive faith through grace and by hearing and believe those things to be true which God has revealed and promised. And this especially, that God justifies the impious by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So all the divine revelations believed by faith, especially this promise. Neither Lutheran or Trent believes that this sort of intellectual assent to the whole of Revelation or what the formula of Concord calls historical faith, is sufficient for salvation. In other words, no one thinks that one is justified alone by this faith in general divine revelation. For Trent, faith as a gift of God must grow into hope, which is a desire for God's promises, and then into love for God, who is the one offering us these promises, and indeed is the promise. So there's love between God and the soul, this union. This love forms or enlivens faith, this formed or living faith is for Trent the final way in which the Holy Spirit and God's grace prepare the soul for God's work of justifying the ungodly. As Trent's session six says, 
for faith, unless hope and charity be added thereto. Neither unites man perfectly with Christ, because it's, it's love between Christ and the soul, nor makes him a living member of his body. So faith is condemned, faith alone is condemned, pardon me, because hope and charity must be added to it. Justification for Trent is constituted not really by works, as much as by this communion and friendship between God and the soul. While some post-Tridentine theologians were willing to talk about being justified by this living or formed faith alone, faith formed by love alone, this would not have satisfied the Lutherans. Luther forcefully states his rejection of justification by a faith formed by love in his mature commentary on Galatians in 1535. He says, Such are the dreams of the scholastics, that faith is the body, the shell, or the color, but love is the life, the kernel, or the form. Luther says, Where they speak of love, we speak of faith. We say that faith takes hold of Christ, and that he is the form that adorns and informs faith as color does the wall. Therefore, Christian faith is not an idle quality or an empty husk in the heart filled by love, which may exist in a state of mortal sin until love comes along to make it alive. If it is true faith, it is a sure trust and firm acceptance in the heart. It takes hold of Christ in such a way that Christ is not only the object of faith, but the one who is present in the faith itself. Faith justifies because it takes hold of and possesses the treasure, the present Christ. This is the formal righteousness on account of which a man is justified. It is not on account of love, as the sophists, the scholastics, say. So moving to the second point on imputation. Luther's rejection of faith formed by love. Faith leads to love. But faith is not formed by love and then is, ju- then is justifying. This faith formed by love and its rejection is connected in this very passage in Luther's commentary on Galatians with the Protestant teaching on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Faith takes hold of the treasure Christ. One is in the bridal tra- chamber with Christ by faith alone. It's interesting how Luther uses this mystical language at times. He says immediately after this lengthy uh, rejection of faith formed by love that while the scholastics say that love forms faith, we say that it is Christ who forms and is the form of faith. Therefore, the Christ who is grasped by faith and who lives in the heart is the true Christian righteousness on account of which God counts us reckons us righteous and grants us eternal life. Here there is no work. Here there is no law. Here there is no love. So it is clear that this is not merely a matter of faith in contrast with charity or works, but rather uh, Christ in contrast with charity. Faith is what alone justifies for Luther because faith is the humble trust in the righteousness of Christ. It is the hand or hook by which we are united in a marriage of trust to Christ. Lutheranism teaches, in the words of the 1580 Lutheran Formula of Concord, that God presents and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ's obedience, on account of which righteousness we are received into grace by God and regarded as righteous. Now, Catholics are said, uh, rightly for the most part, to affirm that we are not justified by the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, but by an infusion of grace. 
But Catholic theologians at Trent were actually not so sure about how to deal with the issue of imputation. To turn again to the Thomist theologian Domingo de Soto, the Spanish theologian admitted that during the of the discussions at the Council of Trent in the beginning, he was suspicious of any use of the word imputation. But eventually he was willing to embrace it under certain conditions. The righteousness of Christ, he said, is the righteousness of the head, which flows into believers as members of his body. Christ is the son of righteousness, S-U-N. We are merely the air or sky that receives this light. If Christ stops illuminating with his righteousness, we would immediately fall back into darkness and wickedness. So according to Soto, Catholics do depend on Christ's own formal righteousness. But Soto insists that believers also receive a righteousness that was inherited to them. Any inherent righteousness imparted to us is ours in a way that is totally dependent on God as source and Christ as redeemer. For, Soto says, God is the one who both draws us to himself and communicates his grace to us. For we cannot think anything else but that he is the one who gives us to will, to do, and to accomplish. Soto knows, this Spanish Thomist, that some Lutherans have accused Catholics who insist on some sort of inherent justice or inherent righteousness of denying that the blood of Christ is sufficient for the whole eternal justification of man. Soto did not accept this characterization of the Catholic position. Quote, Who even among the Pelagians would have ever said these things? Indeed, none of the demons would dare to think anything of this sort. One can see here that even as late as the Council of Trent, more than a generation into the Reformation, theologians like Soto believe that the two sides in the debate sometimes fail to give an accurate account of each other's positions. Now, while Soto wanted to affirm that Catholics always depend on Christ's righteousness and to recognize that the grace which makes us pleasing to God and their infused gifts of faith, hope, love were gifts of God that flow to us through the benefits of Christ's passion, this would not have satisfied Luther or the Lutherans. In part, the notion of infused inherent righteousness leads Trent and Soto to an affirmation of the notion of merit. So the third point here, merit. For Trent, as we've seen, there is nothing at all meritorious before justification. We do not merit being brought into the state of being right before God. We move from being enemies to friends. Enemies can't merit. For Soto, the only works that could possibly be meritorious are those acts elicited by the Holy Spirit from those infused habits of faith, hope, and love done by a Christian in a state of friendship with God. God wants to reward his friends. And for Soto, this is what merit talk implies, that there are human actions brought about by divine grace and in a state of friendship with God, which are fittingly rewarded with heaven itself as the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Because of divine grace, heaven becomes not only a gift, though of course everything is at bottom a gift from God, but also a reward. Once again, there were some complexities here and perhaps a few misunderstandings in the 16th century. For instance, the Protestant rejection of merit, alongside the affirmation of heavenly rewards, actually perplexed Catholic theologians. Soto says that merit is merely the correlative of reward. All, by merit, all we mean is something that is rewarded. But the Protestant rejection of merit, though it has several elements, like the centrality of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and his merits for justification, points to one issue that is not only decisive, 
but also offers a very clear yes or no answer. The issue is the perdurance of sin, particularly original sin, in the justified. And this is the, the heart of my case. For the teaching of justification by faith alone, imputation as the dependence on Christ's own righteousness, and even the denial of strict merit before God, you could say that there's a Catholic sense to all of these Protestant claims, as we've, as we've discussed. But if you ask a Catholic who knows what they're talking about, about whether original sin is removed at the point of justification, the answer would be a firm yes. Catholics say original sin is washed away. If you ask Luther the same question, the answer would be no. In the bull of Pope Leo X that threatened Luther's excommunication, exurge domine, the second condemned proposition is, so this is something ascribed to Luther, he who denies that after baptism sin remains in every child tramples upon Christ and St. Paul. In other words, it's trampling upon Christ to to, to say, to, excuse me, to deny that there's sin in infants after baptism. In his defense and explanation of all the articles unjustly condemned by the Roman bull, Luther replied with references to Romans 7, the law of sin which dwells in my members. So it still is dwelling in me, sin, Luther says. The law of sin is not merely the concupiscence, a key term, talked about by the scholastics. Concupiscence is the the tendencies of the flesh, uh, the, the, the tinderbox or fuel of sin, the fomes peccati. These things, uh, for Catholics and for Lutherans, remain after baptism. But for Catholics, they remain as a defect, a temptation, an inclination. No, Luther says, we must be willing to let sin be sin. Like his Catholic opponents, Luther acknowledges that this fuel of sin is against the plan of God. And he even sounds like many of his Catholic opponents, especially the more Augustinian, when he says, God does not hold against us whatever sin is still to be driven out because of the beginning that we have made in godliness and because of our steady battle against sin, which we continue to expel. That's something Catholics say is, well, as long as you're striving against concupiscence, you're in pretty good shape. But the break occurs when Luther says, God chooses not to charge this sin of concupiscence or the, deny, the desires of the flesh, this lack of perfect purity to us, against us, though he might justly do so. For this re reason, God has given us a bishop, namely Christ, who is without sin and who is to be our representative until we too become entirely pure like him. Meanwhile, the righteousness of Christ must be our cover. His perfect godliness must be our shield and defense. It is only this conviction, Luther continues, that we still have this sin that is then covered and shielded by Christ because he's perfectly pure that lets us learn the benefits Christ offers us and why we need him. Out of this root grow love and delight, praise and thanksgiving to Christ and to the Father of all mercy. Those like the scholastics and the Pope who would hide our sin from us and make it out to be merely a weakness, lull us into a false security, make us lazy and sullen, and take Christ from us. If we become callous in such horrible presumption, we shall relish neither Christ nor God. So he's saying that when you believe that you're still, as a baptized Christian, a sinner, it makes you much more dependent in clinging on Christ. Whereas the Catholic position makes you lazy, not so much 
only burdened. And this emphasis on sin in the baptized is not merely an utterance of Luther in the heat of the battle with the papacy. Decades later, Martin Chemnitz, a Lutheran figure who's called the second Martin, writing in the middle of the 16th century, he wrote in his examination of the Council of Trent that this debate about sin in baptized Christians is not an idle strife about words, but about the most serious matters. Now, why would you say it's just a strife about words? Because Lutherans and Catholics agree that concupiscence isn't the baptized. Lutherans call that sin. Catholics say it's an effect of sin or a cause of sin. Is that just a debate about words? Chemnitz says, no, it's very important. Chemnitz saw it as very important that the papists call that concupiscence, which remains after baptism, merely a defect, a weakness, or an imperfection of our powers, while we contend that it is sin. For Chemnitz, on account of the indwelling sin, the works of the regenerate are in this life neither perfect nor clean in every part. Here is the Lutheran teaching often referred to as simul justus et peccator, that the believer is at the same time righteous, just, and a sinner. Catholic theologians of this period agreed that this notion of simul justus et peccator was a critical issue in the soteriological controversy. Indeed, this issue of sin after justification is the issue which may have troubled 16th century Catholic theologians the most, which is a slight quibble uh, with the previous talk. I don't think it's as much assurance as this. Another Spanish Thomist, Bartolome de Medina, says the following in the period just after Trent. Among the many errors of the Lutherans, this is the chief one, that in the justification of the ungodly, when sins are remitted, those sins are not taken away. But to those who believe in him who justifies the ungodly, their sins are simply not imputed while still actually remaining. This is a teaching that 16th century Catholics could not tolerate. Indeed, for them, justification was the translation from being in a state of sin to being in a state of justice or righteousness. It was ultimately one or the other. Are you justus or peccator? These two states could not be simultaneous. And these Catholic theologians saw this view that original sin remains, remains in the baptized and was merely not imputed or reckoned to the believer's account as key to many of the other disagreements. Both seems, sides seem to have agreed with this assessment. Martin Chemnitz said uh, in his section on the remnants of original sin in the regenerate that, this is quite a claim from a Lutheran, the article of justification is dependent on this one. So, The first and chief article, justification for Lutherans, was in some way founded on this doctrine of the perdurance of sin in the baptized. And I agree with Chemnitz that all the issues discussed above become far more intelligible in light of this fundamental disagreement about original sin. For Lutherans, we are justified by faith alone and not by faith formed by charity because only Christ fulfills the law. We remain sinners, strictly speaking, with imperfect love, with imperfect repentance throughout our Christian lives. So this is why we have faith alone. The imputation of Christ's righteousness is not simply a statement about our need for Christ, which everyone would affirm, but a corollary of the imperfection of our love and works after justification. As Luther puts it in his commentary on Galatians, faith, Christ, and imputation are joined together. Imputation is extremely necessary. First, because we are not yet purely righteous. 
But sin is still clinging to our flesh during this life. Our sins are covered, and God does not want to hold us accountable for them because he's merciful. This does not mean that there is no sin in us. But sin is always present, and the godly feel it. But it is ignored and hidden in the sight of God because Christ the mediator stands between. Uh, Elsewhere, he talks about it being absorbed uh, in Christ. He uses these other images, swallowed up by Christ's righteousness. And of course, meritorious works worthy of the reward of heaven, my third issue, make little sense within Lutheranism because sin clings to all of our works, even as Christians. Instead of looking to rewards or wondering about the quality of our love or contrition, there is for Lutheran the formula of concord, the garment of Christ's perfect righteousness, that covers the remnants of original sin in our members. Luther and later Lutherans argued that coming to grips with the real sinfulness of the concupiscence that remains in our members throws us day by day by day upon the mercy of God and the infinite value of Christ's righteousness. This is why Protestants believed that the Catholic notion of inherent righteousness, even if an unmerited gift of God, that has any role in justification, took away from the work of Christ. It did not let God be God. What is interesting is that Catholics didn't reject this Lutheran position on original sin, merely because it might weaken the traditional view of good works or the sacramental life, as so many writers suggest. Rather, Catholics in the 16th century believed that the Protestant idea that Christ does not truly, at least in this life, take away our sins at justification, that that detracted from the value of Christ's work. I think this is interesting that Protestants and Catholics are both arguing about who's taking away from the value of Christ's work. And I think that's an interesting conversation to have. The Council of Trent thus condemned the idea of original sin, strictly speaking, remaining in the justified. Of course, Trent affirmed that Christians still struggle with sin. Catholics believe that they still commit sins. Catholics believe that they still have concupiscence or the lust of the flesh that wars against the spirit. But in itself, concupiscence itself isn't sin unless we assent to it. In session five of the Council of Trent, it says, and I'll quote at length, if anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in baptism, the guilt of original sin is not taken away, but says that it is only canceled or not imputed, let him be anathema. For in those who are born again, God hates nothing, because there is no condemnation to those who are truly buried together with Christ by baptism unto death. These are made innocent, immaculate, pure, guiltless, and beloved of God, heirs indeed of God, joint heirs with Christ. But this holy council perceives and confesses that in the one baptized there remains concupiscence or an inclination to sin, which, since it is left for us to wrestle with, cannot injure those who do not acquiesce, but resist manfully by the grace of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he who shall have striven lawfully shall be crowned. Turning back to the joint declaration, we might now see with some clarity how it treats this fundamental matter in a less than satisfactory way. The 1999 document lays out the positions reasonably well. But the section on the Lutheran simul usus epicator concludes by saying that, quote, despite this sin, they are not separated from God, and that this sin, concupiscence for the Lutherans, is a ruled sin, 
In these affirmations, they are in agreement with Roman Catholics, despite the difference in understanding sin and the justified. Now, that's one of those moments where you're saying, well, that's was a pretty important issue 500 years ago. The statement of the Catholic section that immediately follows in 4.4 says, as Trent does, that concupiscence remains, but that it is not sin in the proper sense or worthy of damnation, though, of course, it does not correspond to God's original design for humanity and that it is objectively in contradiction to God and remains one's enemy in lifelong struggle. I hope that we can see that this is basically a restatement of the 16th century Lutheran position and the Council of Trent. Now, why is this no longer the fundamental disagreement in the late 20th century that it was in the 16th century? The Joint Declaration does not provide a clear answer. In the appendix, it expresses a concern about how to speak of sin in the justified without limiting the reality of salvation. This is exactly what Catholic theologians were asking in the 16th century, as early as 1518 and 1521. It is no surprise, then, that there was an official response of the Catholic Church to the joint declaration of the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation. I think this is the uh, uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith document that was mentioned earlier, 1998, so before the document was officially signed. While significant progress is acknowledged, the response says, quote, the Catholic Church is of the opinion that we cannot speak of a consensus such as would eliminate every difference between Catholics and Lutherans in the understanding of justification. On some points, the positions are, in fact, still divergent. The major difficulty, uh, and this is me speaking, as we might expect, is the section on the justified as sinner. The response says that even the title, justified as sinner, is a cause of perplexity. According to the doctrine of the Catholic Church, in baptism, everything that is really sin is taken away. The concupiscence that remains in the baptized is not, properly speaking, sin. The response continues, For Catholics, the formula, at the same time righteous and sinner, is not acceptable. It remains difficult to see how in the current state of the presentation, given in the Joint Declaration, that we can say that this doctrine, on simul usus epicator, is not touched by the anathemas of the Tridentine Decree on Original Sin and Justification. So this isn't a place where they're using wiggle words or anything like that. This is where they're stating the Lutheran position, the Catholic position, quite well, and just saying it doesn't condemn anymore, and the response is saying, well, why exactly doesn't it? And these issues remain somewhat open. Now, now they signed the document. There were annexes and different kinds of documents afterwards. But at least according to Avery Dulles, there were not any major qualifications or clarifications relevant to this particular concern that were satisfying. Now, again, I'm not saying that the Joint Declaration should not have been written or even signed. That's not, it's above my pay grade. But if simul usus epicator, the perdurance of the remnants of original sin in the baptized, still is a point of contention or confusion or concern, then the Joint Declaration perhaps doesn't constitute a religious world historical event which ends the Reformation and forces reasonable Christians to revise their maps of reality. It seems like we still have a lot more work to do. Now... My final section, uh, try to be brief. This is an ecumenical event. So I don't believe that we should be content with resting at a clarification of this divergence with some kind of despair or just let's keep on working. The issue of original sin is, as I've argued, 
a perhaps the fundamental point of soteriological disagreement between Catholics and confessional Protestants, and it remains a point of contradiction in our formulas. Where might scholarship and dialogue point us at this stage? I want us to sketch three cautious suggestions, I'm just a historian, that might be fruitful for our panel for tomorrow afternoon. First, confessional Protestants and Catholics agree that we are born in original sin, we all agree that concupiscence, or the fuel of sin, what Paul calls the law of sin in our members, remains in the baptized. For this reason, we all reject a strong account of Christian perfectionism. The Council of Trent calls venial sins daily sins. Trent says, For that cry of the just, forgive us our trespasses, this is both humble and true. So while concupiscence is not in itself a sin for Roman Catholics, venial sins are committed quite frequently. The disagreement between Catholics and Protestants about the distinction between mortal and penial sins is related to the disagreement about whether concupiscence is truly sin. Both claims are rooted in a different conception, among other things, of the divine standard or the divine law. For Luther, God requires perfect obedience, which only Christ has accomplished, which then needs to be imputed or reckoned to us. This perfect obedience is summed up at the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Again, for all of its limits, Exerge Domine, back in 1520, recognizes this fundamental claim when it condemned Luther for saying that in every work the just man sins because it is an omission of that precept to love. For Luther, a good work done in the best manner is venial sin according to the mercy of God, but it is mortal sin, according to the judgment of God. So the idea here is that Luther could say, yeah, you can not commit adultery, not murder, but can anyone say that they love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength at every moment of every day? Who can say that? The Catholic Church affirms, by contrast, that Christians can fulfill the law of God though they, with God's grace, though they do not fulfill it in eviscerating all self-love and loving God with one's whole heart at every moment. So we agree that even Christians with divine grace can't accomplish this sort of spiritual feat throughout life. So then, where exactly is the disagreement? In Domingo de Soto's treatment of this question, he repeats that original sin is removed, stripped away, and buried. He goes right to that point. Concupiscence does not stain all of our works, least of all those which are done through the help and grace of God. He quotes Augustine, this Tridentine Thomist, who says that the complete fulfillment of loving the Lord your God with your whole heart will only take place in the fullness of charity in heaven, the blessed union with God who is love. So then the question is, if we can only fulfill that commandment in heaven, are we falling short of the divine commandment throughout our lives? Which seems to be what Luther believes. According to Soto, the love of heaven is not commanded as something to be fulfilled in this life under the penalty of sin, but rather as the end and goal to which our intention should be directed, that towards which we should be running. Soto sums it up. It is one thing to fulfill the commandment perfectly and another not to violate it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. For Domingo de Soto... The infusion of the smallest degree, one particle, if you will, of God's grace has the necessary perfection to constitute us in friendship with God so that enmity is entirely and utterly abolished. That one particle of love 
an effect of Christ's passion and the work of grace is all that God requires, not this perfect law fulfillment of love of the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength at every moment. Only, for Soto, mortal sin is a contradiction of this love, a violation of this love of unity between God and the soul. This is not what the Lutherans say. But we can all agree that the law is not fulfilled perfectly. Could we also agree that this imperfection, which for Soto is still good enough insofar as it's united in friendship with God, that that imperfection is not damnable because of the mercy of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which would be moving in the Lutheran direction. How far does that move towards the Lutheran idea that this concupiscence is not imputed because of the mercy of God and covered by Christ's righteousness imputed to believers? So, second suggestion. There is an existential dynamic, experiential reality, to seemal justus et peccatum at the same time righteous and a sinner that obviously resonates with my separated brethren and sisters. Luther, even before 1517, asked his opponents to look inside of themselves, to see the concupiscence and the desires of the flesh that prevent us from loving God as we should. Now the question is, how foreign is this experience of imperfection to the writings of the Catholic saints? Martin Chemnitz, that mid-16th century Lutheran, often quotes medieval theologians and argues that their prayers recognize their sinfulness while their theology, by contrast, talks about the total removal of original sin. So the language of prayer and the language of theology, this Lutheran sees as in some tension or contradiction. Now, many Catholics, before receiving the Eucharist, say a prayer ascribed to Thomas Aquinas that expresses the prayer of a person who is in a state of grace preparing to receive the body and blood of Christ. So this isn't before penance, this is before receiving communion. And this is what it says. I come as one infirm to the physician of life, physician of life, as one unclean to the fountain of mercy. Therefore I implore the abundance of thy measureless bounty, that thou wouldst vouchsafe to heal my infirmity, wash my uncleanness, enlighten my blindness, enrich my poverty, and clothe my nakedness, that I may receive the bread of angels." Now, of course, this prayer is not an affirmation of original sin remaining in the baptized. But this prayer also, on the other hand, avoids the triumphalism or presumption in our righteousness and in our state that Luther worried about in 1521. It's a recognition of our nakedness and our blindness and so on, even as Christians. Indeed, after Trent, Bartolome Medina, another uh, Dominican Thomist in Spain, acknowledged that when the new creature born again in Christ considers his imperfections and impurities, he might think that there is more darkness than light, which is certainly a part of what Luther was saying in the 15 teens. But Medina goes on to say, after saying, you look within, you see darkness, quote, the justice of faith and charity is of greater value, worth, or price before God. The justified human being and the righteousness that God grants is of greater, uh, excuse me, is like a seed compared to a mature tree, the perfect love of heaven, a candle to the light of the sun. And God loves this seed and this flicker of light. Medina asks, has not the Savior said, I ask you, Father, that they all may be one as we are one? Is it not that we are members of Christ having the Holy Spirit in us? So again, union, friendship, love in the Holy Spirit between Christ and the soul, 
That's the key. Those held in such great worth before God, those born of God according to John, Medina says, do not sin, since the seed of God remains in them. Union with Christ, these Thomas say, makes it so that we are not as much shielded, the more the Lutheran terminology, as healed and elevated for divine life. God loves the seed of glory itself, and the seed grows into life eternal. This seems to be a middle space between the view that sin is entirely in the past, as Luther feared in the traditional position, and the strongest formulation of Simul uses epicoptor. Now, finally, final suggestion for ecumenical progress might come from the great 19th century Princeton theologian Charles Hodge. I imagine a friend of Dr. Phillips. A strong defender of the Reformed tradition against Romanism. Now, Hodge wrote in his systematic theology in the 19th century in America that guilt, he says, is either ignored or reduced to a minimum by the Romish theory of of justification. Now, hear that again. Guilt is ignored or reduced to a minimum by the Romish, the Roman Catholic theory of justification. Now, this is a stunning claim. Catholics are famous for their guilt. So, I remember reading this and thinking, what is he talking about? While Hodge acknowledges the reformation of the sinner, regeneration, sanctification, and even the infusion of a new principle of life in this corrupt nature, none of these things, this is much of what we heard last hour, are sufficient or even constitutive of justification because the regeneration of the sinner does not remove the desert of punishment. Now, what does he mean by that? No matter how much we are made holy, no matter the depth of our being born again, we still did things that deserve punishment. So this is a different kind of story. Instead of original sin remaining in the baptized, this stain, uh, rather it's this facticity of sin. I did this stuff in the past. And that remains a part of my own personal history, if you will. The guilt for sin of that sort needs to be punished or covered. In his commentary on Romans, uh, excuse me, as usual, Thomas Aquinas makes a helpful distinction here that's often missing in this discussion. At least I haven't really come to grips with this before going in this direction. Aquinas says in his commentary on Romans 4, 7, which says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are remitted and whose sins are covered. Aquinas says that the guilt or reatus is removed with the coming of grace. That's what I've been talking about. But he says the fact that one has committed those sins is not removed. God can't change the past. Aquinas says that the mortal sin has been done and cannot be said not to have occurred once it has been perpetrated. And then he says, in a way that resonates rather deeply with the concerns of Luther and Hodge, the fact of having done a sin, quote, is covered over by the hand of God's mercy and is held as if not committed. It is covered from the divine gaze. That's the language the angelic doctor uses. And of course, for Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition, the hand of God's mercy that covers over the fact of one's past sins is fully seen in the work of Christ on the cross. The humanity of Jesus that is the instrument of God's goodness, mercy, and justice. To what extent could a Thomistic view of the atonement address the Lutheran concerns rooted in the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness? What if we unite the story of sanctification with a richer discussion of the atonement as Aquinas presents it? I understand Hodge's concern that sanctification 
just because I even changed, doesn't change the fact that uh, I committed these sins in the past. That's insufficient for satisfying the debt of punishment for sins that I've committed. But isn't it precisely Christ, not my sanctified soul, that satisfies for my past sins and even for my future sins? It's all on the cross. It is not our sanctification that merits our being right before God, but Christ's work. Faith, hope, and especially charity are fundamental to a Catholic understanding of justification. Why? Because it is by virtue of our union to Christ through faith, hope, and love in this one mystical person or body that we receive the benefits of Christ's death, that Christ's passion is applied to us, sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world and many worlds, infinite worlds. The joint declaration was right to confess that it is by grace alone and faith in Christ's saving work and not because of any merit on our part that we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. But this was not the central issue in the 16th century. More work must be done that focuses on how Roman Catholics and confessional Protestants talk about sins and uh, righteousness in the lives of Christians. The Lutheran simul usus epicator was not embraced by Catholics in the Joint Declaration. The Catholic account of the renewal, pardon me, the Catholic account of the removal of original sin in the justified was not embraced by Lutherans. It is therefore wrong to say that ecumenical dialogue can move beyond what Lutherans call the article on which the church stands and falls. But I believe that those like Lutherans who can say that Christ is as close to the believing conscience as whiteness on a wall, and those like Thomas Catholics and many Catholics who ground all of salvation in our incorporation into Christ's mystical body, might be able to pray with Christ that his disciples may be one, even as the Son and the Father are one. Our vision of union with Christ that is shared can be the beginning of a deeper union with one another. Thank you very much. That's a very interesting question, um, and it's a, diff- a difficult one to answer briefly. I'll do my best. I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not great at brevity. Um, the okay, so no, I, I there, there's maybe two ways of answering this. One is that uh, there there are times when Luther actually talks about himself not as much as a a philologist simply restoring and recovering and finding 
insights in the, you know, the Greek New Testament. Right? There are times when he'll, he'll talk about how, how there is a work of God in him in these, in these last days to proclaim with a greater clarity the teachings of justification by faith alone. And you know, Luther sees uh, you know, that, of course, in St. Paul, it's, he believes it's clearly there, but he thinks there are problems in Augustine, especially on the issue of imputation. In his autobiographical fragment where he says he has this Reformation discovery, this so-called tower experience, he says, I found the idea that it's not God as he is righteous in himself that punishes sinners, but rather the righteousness that is, uh, that is you know, in some, reckoned to us. I found that dynamic that is comforting and consoling in Augustine's spirit in the letter, but he is not very good on the issue of imputation, which, as we can see in both of these lectures, is a pretty important issue. And if Augustine isn't talking about imputation, I, I, think, I think Luther is rather clear that the church fathers and the medieval theologians, again, you might find shards here or there, you might find prayers here or there, but that it hadn't really been brought together in a theological framework. And, and that might be part of what you know, kind of God is doing uh, in the 16th century in light of the, the kind of ravages of the faithful in the later Middle Ages. So I think that that is the way, uh, perhaps, one way that Luther might explain that uh, kind of absence of some of this debate uh, in the previous thousand years. Now, you know, Augustine is a bit unclear about how concupiscence you know, it, to, what, to, to what extent concupiscence is or is not original sin. He's very clear that original sin does not remain in the baptized, but he has a very strong view of the, of the like, deprivations that it, concupiscence brings. So you could see how there are elements in the Church Fathers and other theologians that Luther would, would draw upon. The last thing I'll just point out is I'm, I'm reading this very interesting book uh, that just was translated this year uh, by uh, Bernd uh, Hamm. Uh, about the early Luther and the development of his Reformation theology in his later medieval context. And one of the suggestions that's really interesting, and with this I'll, I'll conclude, is that you know, we, we, we take for granted, and I think you know, that's much of what I was doing here, is you, know, you kind of jump from Paul to Augustine to Thomas Aquinas to the Reformation. And what Hom suggests is that in the early Middle Ages, especially around Charlemagne and the knights and the feudal the feudal context of that world, it, there, was a, there was a great deal of focus on the external doing what was enough to address sin. Now, of course, you can only do that as a member of the body of Christ, but it was very external forms of piety. And then he says in the 12th century, there's this development where there's a retrieval of Augustine and a real focus on love and contrition and motives and intentions, very internal. And then what he suggests is this leads to a certain kind of crisis because it's, you know, what's the relationship of all these external practices that we've been doing to this internal piety and love and contrition that's really being recovered in the 12th century? And he says part of that crisis is taking place only really in the 15th and 16th century and that Luther, Hom argues as a Lutheran scholar, but a great scholar, you know, is very much a man of his time drawing upon the teachings of St. Paul to confront not just a universal view of Christian salvation, but some of the specific pastoral theological crises of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. And again, this is an indirect, somewhat circular answer, but I hope it moves the ball forward somewhat. Go read Hom's The Early Luther 
or Heiko Obermann's Man Between God and the Devil. Uh, that's where I've gotten these answers from. So. Thank you.